desperate, despondent, forlorn, hopelessness, agony, distress, pain, misery, woe, pessimism, resignation. These are all some descriptors, my friend, when I ask some colleagues of mine how they feel about where things are and where things are trending. And yet, I think as we look east and we watch the sun rise today, we recognize it is far from perfect. There are a lot of unknowns. There is a lot of uncertainty. There is a lot of headwind blowing toward us. And the foundation of our lives remain firm and the best of them remains in front of us to ensure that you step into that and that you step into it both unafraid and also no longer on your own. I wanted to invite you today, right now, this moment into our 21 day in awe challenge. I've created these with the help of my team to make sure that as headwind blows and anxiety rises and markets fall and challenges mount that you recognize it is not easy. But it is possible that you've been called and anointed into days like this, that you are ready for it, and that you are unalone. So, my friends, let's go. Roll up the sleeves right now. Let your fingers do the walking. Join me at readinawe.com. Let me say it again because I want to make sure you join me there. Readinawe.com. At the very top of that page is a link to join me in the 21-day challenge. It will spark meaning, hope, and inspiration in your journey regardless of what we face today. My friends, the best is yet to come. It may take us a little while to get there, but the best is yet to come. Let me walk with you along the journey. I'm looking forward to seeing you at readinawe.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary for a very special podcast recording today. I love the fact that we had a guest on our show in January of 2019. His name is Greg Easterbrook, and Greg's podcast was the most popular of all 2019. It's also one of the most popular podcasts that we've ever had on. Greg is a friend. Greg is the best-selling author of the book, It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. And when I had Greg most recently on, it was actually an age where the market was at all-time highs, unemployment at all-time lows, health and longevity at all-time highs, and there was really no reason at all for fear. And yet, even back then, a year and a half ago, we were drowning in fear. Well, today, in the headlines and in the media and social media feeds, there's an awful lot of reason seemingly for fear, and Greg is coming back to the Live Inspired podcast to remind us again, my friends, it is better than it looks. Greg Easterbrook, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Man, it's really a pleasure to have you back. For those who have not yet read the book, It's Better Than It Looks, why'd you write it? I'd answer that this way. Um, In our lifetimes, you and me, both intellectual and public policy directions have been toward relentless pessimism on practically every issue. And yet at the same time, our lifetimes, yours and mine, 
almost every measurable fact about human existence has improved in almost every nation. Now, when I say things like that, I don't mean that all problems are solved. Of course right. not. There are terrible problems in the world and there are more coming. But in general, all through our lifetime, almost everything has gotten better for almost everybody. And, and, and I include the developing world. Poverty is way down in the developing world. Pollution is down. Longevity is rising. War is declining. Street violence is declining. Education is rising. Just about everything that you can measure objectively gets steadily better. And yet in our minds, psychologically, we believe that everything is getting steadily worse. And that's why the book and why the title is It's Better Than It Looks. I don't mean to contend that everything's fine. What I do mean to contend is that in the main, things are better than they look. So right now, I would imagine there are people sitting at home, sitting in their car, trapped in their basement or in their apartment saying, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. We'll, we'll get into the coronavirus here in a moment. But th this guy has no idea how difficult our life is. The middle class is shrinking. Debt is raising. Our freedoms are being stolen away from us. All this bad stuff is coming at us, Greg. It is not better than it looks. It's never been worse, in fact. So to the people who feel as if it's, it's uh, going in the wrong direction, why would you say to them all that you just said? What, what data do you have to back you up on that? Well, I've got, a, I've got a whole book full of it, John. That, that, um, what goes into some detail on everything you just mentioned, and not, not to sound like Luke Skywalker in that movie, but everything you just said is wrong. But I, know, I realize you're characterizing what people believe, but, and, and you're certainly right about that. You're characterizing accurately what people believe. For, for example, the common claim that the middle class is shrinking or being hammered or losing ground in some way. It is true that the middle class is a little bit smaller statistically than when you and I are children. And the reason is that so many people have graduated from the middle class into the upper class. If you look at the part of the country, the upper class has grown a great deal in our lifetimes, mainly by shrinking the part of the country that's middle class. It would be unrealistic to say that's happened for everyone. There are some people who have fallen backward into the working class or even into poverty. There certainly are all kinds of problems as we started this show by saying. But in general, the middle class is getting smaller because people are becoming steadily more affluent. And if you look at middle class income, which Senator Sanders, a presidential candidate, says constantly that middle class income has declined in the last 30 years, that's not factually true. Middle class income has risen. But more important, the way you run your life is not just a matter of pre-tax income. You run your life based on income minus taxes plus benefits multiplied by consumer prices. And if you do the formula that way, the middle class has gotten steadily better off in almost every year of our lifetime. And yet people believe that the reverse is happening. It's part of our modern psychology of believing whatever is most negative and almost becoming offended if someone says that something is going well. Even you, a man who is pragmatic but also somewhat optimistic, has to look out at the headlines and at the growing virus and the shrinking economy with a little bit of anxiety around where we are and where we're heading. So uh, today in mid-March, Greg Easterbrook, how do, how do you feel about where we are? Is it still better than it looks? Oh, absolutely. Now, I would say, again, this is not, to think that it, to, to be an optimist is not to be a Pollyanna. That's a common confusion people have. Pollyannas think that there are no problems, and I'm not like that. An optimist believes that your problems can be solved. 
That's the fundamental difference between optimism and pessimism. Will you say that one more time? The fundamental difference between optimism and pessimism is optimists believe that our problems can be solved. So it's not, optimism is not Pollyannaism. If you think there are no problems, think again. But, but you can think that these problems can be solved. So for example, in the book, It's Better Than It Looks, I think global warming is a huge scientifically confirmed problem. And I spend a full chapter on what are the things that we need to do to solve the global warming problem. I think inequality is, an, is a real problem, and it's a rising problem, and it's not the kind of problem that market economics would normally know how to correct. So I spend a full chapter on how we would fix that. But in general, I'm still totally optimistic, even though coronavirus is everywhere, and I'm kind of shut in my house, and my family's shut in the house, and I'm not having a good time, and I don't think anybody else is. I am optimistic that we are, we are able to fix this particular problem and, and whatever the next problem is that comes after it. Great for those of us who are shuttered in our homes right now, whether we are by ourselves or the house is packed with families, children, neighbors, whoever it might be right now as we hunker down together. What are you doing personally to remain optimistic and passionate for life and certain that tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday? What, what, what's part of your daily practice? Part of my daily practice in situations in like this, whatever the problem is, and today obviously the problem is coronavirus, look at the recent history of similar problems and see what happened. So if you look at the recent history of similar problems, the flu strains that expanded in the world in 2005, 2009, a flu-like thing called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that expanded in the world in 2013, all three of those were predicted to have devastating global pandemic effects and kill millions of people. And all three of them were, were legitimate public health concerns, just like coronavirus is today. But the three previous cases like this never became globally destructive. They didn't kill millions of people. They did kill thousands of people, and that's terrible. But in a world of seven billion, there are a lot of forces that kill thousands of people and car crashes, seasonal Blue, et cetera. So when, when I think about that, one of the things that I think about is the three most recent public health situations similar to coronavirus all turned out to be more easily controlled than anybody ever expected. And that doesn't prove that this one will also be controllable, but it gives you a reasonable hope that things are going to work out. You're also a bit of a historian. As you look back through past pandemics, how does this one seem to compare to other things we've endured as society? Well, if you just stay on the pandemic question, my book, the second chapter, is about the biology of pandemics, because I considered that the number two problem facing the world. The first chapter is about whether we'll starve. If we starve, nothing else matters. So I, I, writing about this long before coronavirus, I considered the control of pandemics to be the number two problem facing the world. So if you step, we just step back 15 years, step back a little farther to 1968, when what was then called the Hong Kong flu expanded dramatically in the world. None of the public health steps that are being taken almost universally today were taken then, and Hong Kong flu did kill four million people. If coronavirus kills four million people, we'll consider that a gigantic defeat for humanity. Almost none of the things that we're doing today were done in 1968. So Hong Kong flu did increase in power. And of course, if you go back farther to the 19... 57 flu and the, and the really awful flu of 1918, you see devastating effects on the human population. 1918 is really not relevant to today, but 
because 1918 was in the middle of the first global war when there had been mass starvation in most of the places that the flu, the Spanish flu broke out, people's public health was already very low in 1918. Overall public health right now is very high. That's one reason why we should be able to resist the current coronavirus. So the farther back you look in history, the more optimistic you become that current strategies will work. And if you look way back in history, you find that the human metabolism and the mammal metabolism has been adjusting itself to resist infectious diseases for time immemorial. Right. No infectious disease has ever run wild. And that was long before antibiotics and sulfa drugs and antivirals and similar things. So I think the chance of this disease running wild, you can't say it's zero, but it's awfully close to zero. The questions are more practical ones about how long do we have to stay locked down? What will the ultimate damage be? Those are the questions. So let's talk about that damage. I know you're an economics type guy. As you look at where we are, what the market's been doing, what employers have been doing, uh, the tightening of our economies locally and certainly globally, how do you feel about where we're heading next? Well, everybody's upset about the stock market. And I would tell you, even many of your Many of your audience probably has 401ks, saving for retirement or in retirement. You're upset about what the market's doing to your 401k. I'd tell you, the stock market's gonna take care of itself. Don't worry about it. Uh, every past big decline on the stock market, including in 1929, has corrected itself and become a gain within one to two years. So it's no fun to go through. Don't worry about the stock market. You should worry about the economy. The economy is a different question and much more substantive. If the economy goes into recession, some people think that's already started. Maybe yes, maybe no, but it's certainly a strong risk at this point. That's going to hurt an awful lot of average people. Anybody who's living paycheck to paycheck, if the economy goes into a recession, you've got a big problem. And historically, although market, stock markets take care of themselves, don't worry about Wall Street. Uh, historically, recessions take one to two years to correct. And one to two years of joblessness for anybody is, is, a, is a real problem. So I want to stay on that, that point of joblessness for a moment, because I would imagine some of our listeners, some of our viewers right now, feels that they may be one of those people or they already are one of those individuals. Some of our viewers right now, uh, they view this almost as a little vacation. Go up to the cabin, take a couple of weeks or months off, and then come back down to earth, and it's all right. Others, like you said, paycheck to paycheck, this is no fun, and it's getting worse. So Greg, for those who are struggling right now and might struggle more mightily going forward in the next couple of weeks, what advice might you have for them? Well, sh short term, I think the advice is just think of it as this is as if the entire United States was hit by a snowstorm. If everybody had to stay home because of a snowstorm simultaneously, and it lasted a week or a couple of weeks, okay, not a big deal. Uh, get to know your family again. Read those books you've always been promising yourself to read. Sit down and read them. Couple of weeks, okay. If this goes on a few months, it's going to become a serious problem for many people. And the only way out of that problem is not particularly attractive, but the only way out is for government to borrow more and distribute the money. And I think if this goes on for a couple or three months, that's what we're gonna to have to do. And it's just not perfect, but it's the way out. Greg, from a psyche spiritual standpoint, for those of us who feel just beat down by the day, I told you when you came on the show today before we started recording, that I, I almost started crying on the way to work today. And it wasn't for me. I, I'm fine. I'm, I'm doing pretty doggone good. 
I, I ache for those who are beat down with depression, anxiety, finances, like it just, it hurts. And it may hurt more before it gets better. So for those of us who are just beat right now, what, what should we be doing right now to ensure that we have strong mental health, that we're doing the next best thing for our self-care and that we're beginning to take care of our brothers and sisters? Anxiety and fear about money, that's a disease of our age. It's a, that ultimately is a much more important disease than coronavirus. Millions of people feel it. We hope that a future society will be structured in such a way that everybody's got to work, you got to pull your own weight, but, but that you don't have to constantly fear about money the way so many people do today. But beyond that, I think optimism and gratitude really will solve some of these problems. And this is regardless of whether you're spiritual or not. I am, you don't have to be spiritual to be optimistic. Uh, here's what I find that's interesting about my own work. I've now written three books that boil down to the thought it's better than it looks, showing various aspects of the way in which the world is better than generally perceived. And when I speak to audiences, the thing that they're angry about is that I'm an optimist. When my, <laughs> when my obituary is written, the obituary will, writer will say, this guy got people really upset by telling them that their lives were better than they realized. That made them angry. Um, and, and, and that's been a repeated experience for me that telling people, you know, your life is actually pretty good. Why don't you take a deep breath and enjoy this pretty good life that the, either God or nature has given you. People get angry about that. And In our last out. visit, and I, I wrote it down, so I'm gonna quote you. This is, this is a quote from Greg Easterbrook, January, 2019. And you're quoting someone else. I won't, I won't attribute the quote here, but you said, the country is in the worst shape it's ever been, ever been. Our country is going to hell. We are going down 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 those words were spoken in denver colorado and two days later the, the person who authored those words received 63 million votes uh for people voting for that type of perspective on our on our world why is it that we are anti-optimist and absolutely for those who are saying we're doomed more attend and i'll add to that john that what you just said, quoting Donald Trump just before he was elected, is amazingly similar to what Bernie Sanders is saying on the campaign trial right now, that the country has never been in worse shape. In fact, he said that in the, in the debate on Sunday, the country has never been in worse shape. It's what people want to believe, and you know from human psychology that what people want to believe is a thousand times stronger than what you can prove to them. Why do people want to believe that events are terrible? Well, to a certain extent, if you think about the long sweep of history, People who were suspicious and pessimistic and felt constant anxiety in prehistory were probably more likely to survive than people who were happy-go-lucky. So we're, we're we, we are descended from the anxious and stressed out of, of the far past. That's what part of what our heritage is. I would have been is. doomed. I never thought about it this way. I would have made it maybe to my second birthday, maybe. Exactly. That our, our distant ancestors, the ones who stopped to smell the roses, got eaten by something uh, and they didn't reproduce. So we're descended from the people who are always scanning the horizon, watching for the predator to approach. So we still do that today. And to a certain extent, this is not illogical. I'm not, I'm not saying this is an irrational approach to life. To be worried about what's going to hit you next is probably a survival strategy. But at the same time, you, you do have to stop and smell the roses, take that deep breath, feel gratitude. I always, I think about my near ancestors, just my great grandparents, 
how they experience life and how much, strictly from a material standpoint, plus education and communication, how I have today, living a middle-class lifestyle in the United States, things that my great-grandparents would have considered utopian. The availability of all the food I want at any time, the availability of easy access to education, books, information, travel, talk to anybody anywhere in the world for almost nothing. If you told that to your great-grandmother, she would have said, well, then you must live in utopia, don't you, John? Thinking about this doesn't turn you into a Pollyanna. It just makes you step back and say, hey, my life is actually pretty good. In what ways can I appreciate it? And in what ways can I share this with other people? Mm. Greg, as I've told you before, and I'll tell you again and make sure our listeners hear it, It's Better Than It Looks is a phenomenal book packed with truth, which is awesome. Um, When it came out, it's now in paperback, which is phenomenal. But I love the original title, The Arrow of History. It may not have sold as many copies, but tell our listeners and viewers today why you almost titled this baby The Arrow of History. Yeah, this this is, you remember that you have a good memory, John, from the previous broadcast. I wanted to call the book The Arrow of History. And, and that's a slight play on something that FDR, one of my heroes, Franklin Roosevelt, said just before his death, never forget that the trend of civilization is always upward. And he said that when the entire world was burning. Since then, the trend has been upward for almost everybody, including the large impoverished class of the world, which gets smaller and smaller every year. So I wanted to, I wanted to call it the arrow of history. My publisher perhaps wisely thought that sounded like some sort of academic treatise, and we went with, but it's better than it looks instead. Greg, a, a parting word for those at home with the, the blinds drawn, barely hanging on today. What, what, what advice would you give all of us as we are looking at the horizon, wondering what storm's coming next? In almost every case, the optimist wins. Optimistic forecasts are almost, I can't, I wouldn't say always because that wouldn't be true, but they're almost always successful. You pick any period in history, any basic set of issues, you look at the optimistic forecasts and the pessimistic forecasts, the optimistic forecasts are the ones that prove true. And that's gonna, I, I feel a great deal of confidence that will continue to be true well into the future. Greg, I I look forward to our next conversation with um, storms on the horizon, but sun shining overhead. I don't know when that will be, but I'm already looking forward to it. Me too. My friends, that is Greg Easterbrook. I am John O'Leary. The book is called It's Better Than It Looks. It's a phenomenal read by a wonderful guy, dear friend. So Greg, thank you for your time. Thank you, John, for having me. My friends, for this time and until next time, I am John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live Inspired. I hope you enjoyed today's Live Inspired podcast. You may know this, but if you don't, get ready for it. We are just a couple weeks away from launching my newest book. Give me the drum roll, please. There you go. I heard it in the background. The book is called In Awe. My friends, In Awe is packed with inspirational stories that will remind you that your days aren't just something to endure, but a marvelous gift to savor. I know the news and the headlines today can make us a bit anxious right now, and yet I look forward to reigniting your hope for tomorrow and reminding you of the absolute truth that the best is yet to come. So my friends, join me right now. Check out the website where you can learn more about the book. You can find all the details at readinawe.com. Again, it is read 
inaw.com. On that site, you can pre-order your very own copies. You can get some in awe goodies. You can hear the early buzz about the book, and you can get a sneak peek into what took place to get this book to where it is today. You're going to love it. So check it out one final time. I'll see you there. It is at readinawe.com.